All right, come on around, guys. Lots of space here. You guys might be wondering, I look like a movie star right now. I have a little microphone on me. My uh, uh, tour guide friend, he records a podcast called Berlinology. So he's actually doing an uh, episode on Checkpoint Charlie and wants to see, of course, how the tour guides introduce this wonderful center that we have behind me. So he's going to be recording me, which is great. But yes, as I said, guys, our next stop is Checkpoint Charlie, which is just behind me. You guys might be able to make it out. This, as I said, is one of the most important checkpoints along the Berlin Wall. Okay, so welcome everyone to Checkpoint Charlie. Every tour guide's favorite place in Berlin by far, because everything here is completely authentic and original to the checkpoint. <laughs> because I would like to welcome you guys to capitalist Disneyland. Woo! Woo! Yeah! What do you have here? A uh, replica of Checkpoint Charlie, a uh, temple to capitalism. You've got uh, KFC on one side, McDonald's on the other. You've got uh, Starbucks down the street. Uh, hey friends of the podcast, Walrus here. I might sound a little bit different because I've got just a tiny bit of a cold, which is genuinely appropriate in this matter because we're going to talk all about the Cold War. You might have found the introduction to the checkpoint a bit weird. I mean, you could just hear the sarcasm and the negativity just drip from the tour guides. I could have started the podcast a little bit different, for example, uh, something like this. So right here on Friedrichstrasse, right here at Checkpoint Charlie, we have one of the most famous tank standoffs in history. The only time American and Soviet tanks came head to head was right behind me. World War III would have broken out on the streets of Berlin on that day. I mean, that's the beginning of a show. The Third World War, kapow! But somehow Checkpoint Charlie doesn't capture that experience today. It's not alive, it's not representative, and I think most importantly, it doesn't do justice to the historic relevance of the place. When I mentioned to my friends I was going to do an episode on Checkpoint Charlie, I think everybody was like, why? Why would you start talking about Checkpoint Charlie? What's to talk about? Well, I'll tell you plenty, plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Berlinology. Welcome to the show. Here we go. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listeners of the show, I'm very lucky to have one of the tour guiding legends with me today. From Germany itself, it's Carolina Marburger. And right now, the two of us are in the middle of Berlin, right in front of the former border crossing. Um, in your tours that you do through Berlin, how would you uh, sort of address Checkpoint Charlie? Is it like one of your favorite stops or you're one of your least favorite stops? Like how, how, how does it fit into your tour? You know what is coming. <laughs> well, it is usually the least favorite spot, um, even though I, I feel sorry for it uh, because it feels something like, in German you would say it's the Schmuddelkind. Schmuddelkind is sort of that, I mean, it's not a very appropriate thing to say, but it always like, it's the dirty kid you don't want to play with. So the, basically, um, everyone's sort of like, yeah, it has to be done, but you rather want to get it over with. And actually not at all because of its history or what it stands for. It stands for something really, really important, but just the way it is. First, let's get down to business. Uh, what is Checkpoint Charlie and what does it stand for? Dating back to the military, military alphabet of Alpha Bravo Charlie, so the third Allied checkpoint and therefore the one for the Allies, for representatives of the mutual governments of East and West Germany and any, any foreigner visiting. So we got the first bit of vital information here. It's Checkpoint C, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, the third Allied checkpoint. And that tiny bit of information can easily lead to some misunderstandings. For example, did the Germans also call the checkpoint Charlie? There is a couple of historic pictures around the area that will help us untangle this Charlie mess. Look at this. 
I, I always really like this picture. Yeah, so for us, it's, it's definitely helpful to have those. Basically, you, you look away from all the hassle and focus on that. Yeah. Yes. So what we see here, we see a, a black and white picture. Uh, it's taken from, well, I'd say the, the airspace of the east yeah. uh, on to, um, yeah, it's an aerial footage of the checkpoint itself. And what it shows quite clearly, it's it's not a one-way street with a house on it. It's actually, I don't know, like 15 different traffic lanes or something yeah. like that. Uh, several stops in between, and it overtakes this entire region. Yeah. Uh, something I also didn't know exactly, maybe you can help me out. Uh, we're still a bit away from the actual checkpoint itself, from, from where the sign says. Are we already in the checkpoint at the moment? Well, not in the checkpoint, we are at the control point of the east. And that's the important part that, that takes up basically two blocks now. And we are far away from Checkpoint Charlie, which is that tiny bit on top of it. That is actually what qualifies as Checkpoint Charlie, is what is beyond in West Berlin. And that's a tiny little spot up there, while everything below is actually the control point. Which was uh, not called the, Checkpoint the, not Charlie. Not Checkpoint Charlie, because Checkpoint Charlie is only the allied part, which is one part of the story. And um, of course, we focus on that one. Now, Checkpoint Charlie is often mistaken for being the border crossing. Whereas actually, it's nothing other than a small American army hut. A way for the Americans to keep an eye on the border crossing itself. Hence, the Germans didn't refer to the crossing as Checkpoint Charlie, but as the Grenzübergangstelle Friedrichstrasse. If you were, say, Allied personnel or a diplomat crossing into East Berlin, you had to first register at the little army hut before heading to the Grenzübergangstelle to have an additional check by the East German guards. But I feel we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Maybe we should do a small recap on how Checkpoint Charlie came to exist in the first place. Niemand hat die Absicht, eine Mauer zu errichten. Nobody has the intention of building a wall. That was a very famous quote by a man called Walter Obricht, the then leader of the GDR, East Germany, who on the 15th of June 1961 fervently denied that they were planning for the construction of a border between East and West Berlin. Only two months later, on the 13th of August 1961, a mobilization of about 40,000 East German soldiers would hermetically seal West Berlin from the rest of East Germany. Here's a clip of the RIAS, the radio in the American sector of that particular night. It's a reporter who made his way through Berlin as the wall was going up. Und an allen Grenzübergangsstraßen dasselbe Bild. Verrosteter Stacheldraht, der sich quer über die Straße spannt. Und dahinter Posten von etwa vier, zum Teil auch fünf, kriegsmäßig ausgerüsteten Postpolizisten mit umgehängtem Stahlhelm, geschulterten Gewehren mit aufgepflanzten Bajonetten. Now he finds that everywhere along the border of West Berlin, a fortification of barbed wire was going up, protected by armed men of the East German People's Police, the VOPOS. Here's another fragment of that clip, the reporter asking a passerby what he makes of all of this. Now for him it's clear that the barbed wire went up to prevent citizens from the east to flee into West Berlin. 
And as it would soon turn out, this theory was not far-fetched. Between the end of World War II in 1945 and this night of fortification in 1961, it's estimated that about two and a half to three million East Germans left their country, made their way towards the West. Now, as West Berlin was an island in the middle of East Germany, it would prove a desirable escape haven. But in the middle of the night, on the 13th of August 1961, the city of West Berlin will be almost completely cut off. So maybe um, let's talk a little bit about the events that immediately lifted Checkpoint Charlie into world fame. Like how I always talk about it, um, the, the moment, uh, of course, the, we have the, the 27th of October 1961, when we actually have the confrontation between the Soviets and the Americans here at this particular spot. Um, but there is a couple of events that lead up to this. Uh, there's already tension between the East and the West, between Khrushchev and between Kennedy, uh, which will eventually result into this one confrontation. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? And I'll try to sort of squeeze in whatever I can as well. Yes, so when the wall comes up on August 13, 1961, uh, of course the shock is great among Berliners. Um, there is the um, awareness of Willy Brandt, the mayor of West Berlin, uh, what's going on, but the response from the West is sort of little to a certain degree. Of course they are also shocked, they're taken by surprise, but of course the, the Soviets, or rather the East Germans that pushed for it, are wise enough to put it into their very sector so it doesn't exactly infringe on allied rights in berlin so there isn't really a premise what to do apart from some protesting and saying like that's not really okay um, and so one doesn't know what to do now the sudden build of the wall of course uh, caused a stir among the berliners but it's not just germans who were caught by surprise i mean overnight american troops in west berlin will find themselves surrounded by thousands of hostile troops the presence of the Americans in the city of West Berlin will lie at the heart of the cause of the confrontation. Here is John F. Kennedy on the 25th of July, 1961, so about three weeks before the wall went up, explaining in what a difficult nature post-war Berlin finds itself. Let me remind you that the fortunes of war and diplomacy left the free people of West Berlin in 1945 110 miles behind the Iron Curtain. This map makes very clear the problems that we face. The white is West Germany, the east is the area controlled by the Soviet Union, and as you can see from the chart, West Berlin is 110 miles within the area which the Soviets now dominate. Now, if you're not entirely familiar with the occupation history of Germany after the war, I would recommend pausing the podcast for a minute and take a look at a map of the division and the country. It really is kind of a mad situation, especially in regards to where Berlin um, is in all of this. And uh, people always tell me that it helps out greatly to see it drawn out on a map. Now here is uh, JFK again explaining how American troops actually ended up in that little bit of West Berlin. We are there as a result of our victory over Nazi Germany and our basic rights to be there, deriving from that victory include both our presence in West Berlin and the enjoyment of access across East Germany. These rights have been repeatedly confirmed and recognized in special agreements with the Soviet Union. Berlin is not a part of East Germany, but a separate territory under the control of the Allied powers. Thus, our rights there are clear and deep-rooted. 
Okay, and let me now play this for you again. This is super important to understand why things are actually going to get out of hand later. And our basic rights to be there include both our presence in West Berlin and the enjoyment of access across East Germany. Enjoyment of access across East Germany. I think it's crucial to understand that the Americans ended up occupying a little bit of terrain in the middle of a sea of red Soviet territory, which with the Cold War and all was a slightly uncomfortable situation for everyone involved. The Soviet blockade of 1948-49 had shown that West Berlin could be cut off from its supply lines. It was due to the determination of the American and British governments to establish the famous airlift to not let West Berlin become a red state. The American Lucius Clay, commanding officer in Berlin during this incredible airbridge, will play yet another crucial role in the crisis at Checkpoint Charlie 13 years later. And so, with all of this in mind, here is John F. Kennedy, saddled up with this uncomfortable historical baggage and at the same time repeatedly threatened by Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the USSR, to remove any troops from West Berlin. But in addition to those rights is our commitment to sustain and defend, if need be, the opportunity for more than two million people to determine their own future and choose their own way of life. Thus, our presence in West Berlin and our access thereto cannot be ended by any act of the Soviet government. But could it maybe be challenged by an act of another government? What impact will the walling in of West Berlin have on the actions of the Americans? About a month after the wall goes up, JFK sends a special envoy to Berlin to get a better grasp on the situation. Lucius Clay, who famously had been the father of the big airlift, is sent by JFK, so he knows how much the West Berliners appreciate him, love him. So it's basically pacifying a little bit the mood of the Berliners. And he has maneuvers run, at least, in, in Tiergarten to, to take uh, the structures down. The Soviets obviously know that. Everyone knows what the other is doing. As a force of strength, uh, Lucius Clay orders the American army in Berlin to run maneuvers close to the wall. The tanks involved have been equipped with a sort of snow shovel attached to the front, which gave the impression they were ready to take down the wall at any moment. The problem was that the wall was being firmly built on East German territory. A hostile takedown of the wall could be taken as an infringement of the sovereignty of East German, or at least Soviet territory. As long as the wall doesn't hinder Allied personnel from crossing, there seems little the Americans can do. Um, and then there is tension at Checkpoint Charlie when there's basic power play happen in a small amount, like every day, that East Germans, um, East German police, not really um, having the right to do that, stop the Allied soldiers or Allied personnel in civilian uniforms that go to East Berlin, and that is against the rules, as Allied personnel had uh, the um, responsibility and, and were allowed to move freely. They were meant to move freely without being checked by anyone, let alone East German police. Oh, oh. so let's chime in here with the tour guides again, uh, as this situation is getting a slightly little bit out of hand. Here's the 22nd of October, 1961, only two months after the build of the wall. An American diplomat called Alan Leitner wanted to cross one evening from the west to the east, as he'd done many times before, so he could take his wife to a concert, date night. On his way through, he's asked for his papers by an East German border guard. He gets stopped. 
he actually gets refused entry, which is quite unusual because actually there was an unspoken agreement between the Soviets and the Americans that if you're a military man, you could cross over this checkpoint, no questions asked. So Mr. Leitner refuses. This border guard stands his ground and denies them entry. So the Leitners get sent back, date night, cancelled. Mrs. Leitner, raging. So what ends up happening, he comes back to West Berlin, complains to his friend, General Lucius Clay. Lucius Clay hears this and goes, wait, what? No, not on my watch. First, those Soviets, they build a wall around our city and we can't do anything about it. Now they're changing the rules on us and making us look like idiots. News of all this gets back to General Lucius Clay, one of the big heroes of the Berlin Airlift, and his response to this flagrant disregard for the authority of the occupying powers is probably what any one of us would do in that situation. Send in the tanks. Send in the tanks. Send in the tanks. Now this president at Checkpoint Charlie on the 22nd of October proves to be a very dangerous one. Over the next couple of days, Lucius Clay orders the armed escort of Americans over the Grenzübergangstelle. Now that sometimes quite literally means that private and diplomatic vehicles will be flanked by American soldiers, who, uh, bearing rifles with bayonets, will escort them straight through the East German checkpoint. Now it will not be long, however, before even this becomes impossible. Here's a clip from some Americans trying to get through the checkpoint a few days later on the 27th of October 1961. We have no pass signs, we're Americans and we're going through. Wenn Sie nicht willens sind, die Pässe zu zeigen, müssen wir auf Ihren Besuch verzichten. We are not willing to show the passports, that's what the East German captain says. They don't want to see us anymore. Military personnel, there's no need to show passports for military personnel, but civilians have to show the passports, that's what he said. No, then I demand to see a Russian officer. Ich möchte einen russischen Offizier sehen. Kann ich ihn nicht mit dienen? wird von uns durchgeführt hier diese Maßnahme. I cannot help you because this decision for showing passports is an East German affair. May I explain to him the Potsdam Agreement which allows Americans free access to the city portion of East Berlin and we demand that right. Will he let us pass? Können wir durchfahren? Nein, Sie können nicht durchfahren, solange die Zivilpersonen die Ausweise nicht gezeigt haben. Now you can clearly hear how the Americans were not willing to legitimize the East German guards, restricting their right of entry. Now instead they were demanding to see a Soviet officer, whom they were still holding accountable for the oversight in East Berlin. But ironically, it would be the appearance of the Soviets at Checkpoint Charlie that would lift the Berlin crisis to a new height. Increasing tension brings swift and dramatic measures. Soviet tanks move to the border. The United States Berlin Command responds quickly as our own tanks are dispatched to the area. And we see the tanks of the Americans facing into the east while there are, we can figure out, six tanks of the Soviets T-34s that face us. And so it is the very famous standoff at Checkpoint Charlie of October 61, the very fearful moment when people thought maybe the Cold War will turn. So after days of American presence at Checkpoint Charlie on the 27th of October, the Soviets sent their own tanks to the wall, backing up the East German border guards. And with the American tanks present as well, this would result in a 16-hour tank standoff 
right here in the middle of Berlin. What I always find fascinating, and this is something I only learned later on, you got all these tanks, right, and military men, but then what's happening over here? I mean, this just, what is happening People over here? People are not worried about the Cold War. No. <laughs> People, they stand by, right? Like just passengers that stand and have a look at a moment that at least the world was really frightened about, but they're just like, okay. What's going on? That, that's something that I never really understood entirely. If this was such a tense moment, if people were about to shoot each other, tanks were shooting and the third world war might break out, then what are all these people just casually standing about taking pictures and, well, let's see if a confrontation breaks out today, right? I mean, it's quite let's fascinating. They'll shoot. Um, well, I think, I think that's the typical thing that a photo dramatizes one moment that lasts for 16 hours. And of course, a lot of people are like, what's happening? That many of the soldiers don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's not that you can't stay in a tense mode for 16 hours. Sure. However, what this stands for on the global scale is dangerous. Yet, indeed, the passengers show it's more like, what is going to happen? Now, although the confrontation itself might have spiked more curiosity in some Berliners than fear, the fact that troops were rallying around this artificial line in the middle of the city was, of course, a very worrying thing. Uh, how, how then eventually does it resolve itself? Well, it is, uh, it is the situation that in the back rooms, actually, while they want to show power, neither is really in the position to dare and risk really an outbreak of another war and I think that is why compared to the Cuban Missile Crisis very often in history books it's not that often mentioned so if someone listens and they're like I don't I didn't know that no worries it kind of because it resolved and it sort of wasn't really kind of uh, happening but indeed the, the reason was that both didn't really want to go there uh, there were hardliners that said in America like oh come on let's go first we'll have a first strike but JFK like no 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 this is not happening um, and Khrushchev was not really in a power position either he was of course um, at the time they had the bomb and everyone was frightened because we are in the nuclear age and and Khrushchev was strong in showing off that they had finally gotten uh, nuclear power and that made that moment so scary in the minds of many people that saw it yet the powers themselves were not in position to go that far. So there are backroom talks. Uh, believably, uh, Bob Kennedy was involved. And so it comes to a situation where the Russians at that time, slightly sort of less authoritative, will go first. So they will actually withdraw. And however, they don't go back to base. They just withdraw to the side streets and wait if the Americans keep their promise and they withdraw as well. So it's a slow uh, drawing back of, of both forces and basically so that is why it's not such a tense moment however what it decides for the Berliners is of course okay that means the Western powers are accepting. Just remember that the confrontation is just another segment in the saga of the building of the Berlin Wall and that all throughout this has been continuing ever since. The Western powers are accepting and I accepting the wall. Accepting the wall and I mean the uh, the tragedy in there is that we sometimes forget what the wall stood was at the time because at that time it's a complete cut-off situation. One shouldn't be uh, distracted by the fact that Allied soldiers are going through. No West Berliner is coming to the other side either. So this is a complete cut-off of a city. Not That changes over the years but for the time being it's a complete cut-off and the global powers will accept it, the Western world will accept it for the time being, because famously JFK said it's not a nice, a nice situation, but it's a hell of a lot better than war. When the wall goes up, it cuts straight through the city, making escape for East Berliners near to impossible. 
But it also means that West Berliners, for the time being, were instantly cut off from their relatives and friends. Those are relationships, of course, that over the course of the next 28 years had to endure some extreme hardships. Over decades, historians have speculated what would have happened if the Americans would have pushed the wall over. Like, would the East German government back down? Would the Soviets come to back them up? And what would such a force of strength actually look like? Like, I mean, it's tanks um, driving through the walls, it military men of the Americans. Those, of course, are some unanswerable questions. But the fact is that the wall was up, uh, the Americans were still in West Berlin, and that's where they would stay for the next 28 years. We're going to talk a bit more about Checkpoint Charlie, especially, of course, what it is today. I mean, we've covered the history now uh, quite a bit. But first, this uh, short message. So, my international friends, uh, I'm really, really happy to have been able to finally bring you another episode. Uh, a lot of work went into this show, uh, though there is also another very exciting reason it has been a bit quiet over the past months. I've been working on another podcast that will soon see its release. It was an opportunity for me to, to work and talk with some very interesting people and, of course, allowing me to use my my skills gathered over the past few years. Um, I'll keep you updated, but expect an update on the new episode. All right, let's get back to the program. Uh, we've just had an incredibly tense moment during the Cold War. In this next bit, we're going to talk about how Checkpoint Charlie failed to become an interesting historic site in Berlin. What happened after the wall came down? So that's where uh, how Checkpoint Charlie gets lifted into world fame immediately because people see it on their little black and white screens. They see these te- these these tanks arriving, and uh, for a moment everybody thinks, "Oh, this might be the Third World War or something like that." Um, when the tension then resolves, um, this eventually will become a very popular place in a way, and even during the time of the wall, because this is the place where all these foreign tourists are allowed to go into East Berlin. They are allowed to travel through the wall and have a look at what life is um, in East Berlin. Could you maybe describe a little bit about how that is? Could they go for extended holidays or was it more a bit of a sort of an, an excursion that you could do through East Berlin? I think the most uh, most love it gets, I guess, from, from veterans that actually were stationed here because they had indeed relatively easy access to the East of Berlin where they went uh, and could have a blast because of the little uh, low prices. But indeed, a foreigner at least needed to have the visa. He needed to get the information at Checkpoint Charlie about how that visa would work. And then, of course, passing Checkpoint Charlie was not the issue. It was then passing the long uh, checks at the the control point. And the East Germans, of course, made a point of not allowing um, those Western capitalists in as easily. So if I have ever heard someone that actually passed through, so American uh, visitors or something, they usually say, like it was very awkward it was it took some time they were taken into little rooms uh, where they had to show that they had nothing on them and and so sometimes they got more lucky but it was um, for many kind of an awkward experience because of course the um, soldiers there stationed they they made points out of it to to be very very um, controlling I mean it became it became political right this whole thing and I've heard that too on people on my tour they always describe it as a very unpleasant experience Uh, going through having your luggage all thrown together Mm -hmm. having just this weight without having given your passport back and just eventually you could get over but then of course you could see how life was behind the Berlin Wall and for some people that was very exciting now as Checkpoint Charlie is the only place in Berlin where foreigners are allowed to cross the wall 
it would continue to gain world fame long after 1961. Especially when the Cold War seemed to dwindle, uh, ever more people made it down to the checkpoint. And then, of course, in 1989, the wall comes down. Well, I think it's easy to imagine that if your city were divided the way that Berlin was for nearly 30 years at first opportunity, you would want to get rid of all of the things that reminded you of these dark days of division when you couldn't see your family and your friends. So in the early 90s, most of what was here was torn down. Later in the 90s and in the early 2000s, you started to see replicas of some of the things that were here popping up. Like in the middle of the street, you have a replica of the U.S. Army checkpoint hut. That was put there in August of 2000. It's not the original, and they certainly aren't American soldiers. Those are German actors dressed as American soldiers. Charge you three euros per person per photo. I'll take one with you for one euro if you want, and I'm actually American, so I think that's a pretty good bargain. But yes, when the wall comes down, um, the wall, as we know, it's, it's dismantled all of it uh, in summer 1990 that's the concerted action that everything goes down and checkpoint charlie is among it uh checkpoint charlie they know what it stands for they they, they take it away and they put it into a museum currently you find it in the allied museum a bit further away in west berlin worth a visit are you telling me that what we see over here is not real carolina marburger <laughs> yes. i'm so sorry to let you down Walter. so what does checkpoint charlie actually look like today so uh we are standing on this place of nothingness, uh, two blocks on both sides of the road on the eastern side that are still sort of not developed yet, sporting these lovely beaches and Coca-Cola umbrellas and well we can talk about the wall panorama later that's a bit more uh, to the point and what we see is now uh, that copy, the very hot and white uh, Sengers Army checkpoint with two dressed up soldiers in front, uh, happily taking photos with someone in the middle asking, I think, three euros for that. So there's these two temporary constructions there, and in general, it's just a very, very ugly sight. With, of course, McDonald's and KFC and Starbucks represented. Uh, you've got the currywurst places everywhere, people selling fake Soviet memorabilia. Like, it's not really hard to understand why people and the tour guides would reduce this place to this capitalist Disney world. And that's, of course, a shame. I mean, it's, it's been 30 years since the wall came down, and not much has happened to this place since. Uh, plans have been presented, uh, insolvencies declared, governments elected, governments passed. But all of this hasn't really affected one of the most popular places in Berlin. Now, when Carolina and I are walking around a bit, uh, she, she asked me how I look at Checkpoint Charlie myself, how I talk about it on my tours. Uh, I said something like this. I always struggle a bit to find, like, my, my entire story is a lot about how choices of the people that live in Berlin affect the current situation, is how we can see them. For example, people living here, but also the government, mm -hmm. like choices to keep buildings upright or to break yeah. them down or to renovate them or to put a memorial up. Those are all individual choices. Yeah. And I feel there is a suspicious lack of choice here. Like there is, yeah. there is not anything done here. Like there is some individuals who have taken the, um, the opportunity of either building uh, KFCs and McDonald's or a private museums or put an art project up here but if you're talking about from a government perspective I feel there is a surprising lack of, of control it's, it's here. probably one of the few places in Berlin in its center historical place where there is no heart in it like there's there's and, and also Berliners hearts are not kind of in it and I think that has to do with that they don't apart from Kaffee Adler I think that would have been a place where West Berlin is like yeah right I hang, hung out there 
they don't have that. So it is it is people that that went through and they are not part of the city. They are visitors. So it's a bit it's but, a bit of a transient place, I think. But, but what is what is that thing about? Like Berlin is known to, to sort of be able to confront its past and to uh, mm. you know to make it transparent and to yeah. talk about it and do that in interesting ways. Why hasn't that Why hasn't that really happened here? Why does it all come from? Like these are all private. Even the black box mm. is a sort of a private yeah. institution. Mm. Why Why hasn't the government really done more I here? I think what one really has to understand it doesn't resonate with Berliners because it's not part of their experience. It's not their story. It would be actually perfect if someone that actually has a story that connects. Of course, now it's mostly those that run the Mauer Museum. They they have had their story here for a long time. But if, if you know, perfectly, it would be an American-Soviet undertaking. <laughs> Interesting these days. What Carolina is referring to here actually makes quite a lot of sense. Um, maybe the reason that Checkpoint Charlie hasn't developed over the last 30 years is because Berliners just don't really feel it's part of their history. I mean, of course it is. It is in Berlin. Uh, it was right there when the wall went up. And all of these Cold War stories are heavily intertwined. But it is the place where American tanks and Soviet tanks came to a confrontation, where Frederick Pryor was exchanged, huh? part of the, the whole Bridge of Spies, uh, spy exchange situation. It's the place where American, British and French allied personnel was allowed to cross the wall. Whereas, of course, Germans and Berliners came to use other checkpoints all over the city. But also, I think very interestingly, maybe for the Americans, the checkpoint is a place of pride, a commemoration of standing up against the Soviets, and maybe even connecting that with the Berlin airlift, which of course helped the Berliner so much. For them, Checkpoint Charlie stands for hope, for standing your ground, for believing in something. For the Berliners, maybe the confrontation at Checkpoint Charlie, as we discussed earlier, is this moment in which the West, including the Americans and the British, came to accept the Berlin Wall, with, of course, 28 years of division as a result. That, of course, could be another explanation, had a more negative connotations about Checkpoint Charlie. Berliners are usually very, very careful about their public spaces and about history. Uh, but somewhat Checkpoint Charlie, because it is already as bad, uh, people feel like, uh, really? And of course, the situation has been going so long that, that the development products have been going since the 90s. There are many, many different investment firms that have bought this up. The city has given it to them while requiring a museum that is to be built for years now. Now, the earliest development plans date back to 1992, so right after the fall of the wall. Uh, the area was sold to build an American business center on this site. But by 2007, not a lot had come of these plants and the lot was sold off to an Irish investment firm only to have its debts taken over by another firm in 2015. Since then this firm called Trockland has presented several plans of how to develop this area. So, so what should be the idea is that there a proper museum will be built here? Yes, but it is not a museum that is built as a museum uh, by the city, but it will be a developer that already has built on the next corner, the Checkpoint Charlie Living, which is living quarters. The idea is, I mean, in my humble opinion, these are developers that at least use architects that are a bit more interesting than the general average one so it could be at least in terms of looks maybe not too uh, silly and sad but and they want to keep a sort of open space they are aware 
but um, it will be a museum inside those buildings. It will be in the uh, downstairs apartment and it will be that the city of Berlin needs to pay quite some rent for it. Among the ideas for the developments of the two lots at Checkpoint Charlie are office spaces, apartments, of which 30% might actually become social housing, and last but not least, a hard rock hotel. Now, in the basement of one of the lots will be the Cold War Museum, or at least that's where it's planned, will be rented out to the government for an estimated price tag of 900,000 euros per year. It's after all a prime piece of land that the city sold off in the 90s. Recently, more and more people have mingled in the debate around the site. City planners condemning the city's inaction for all those years and doubting whether the investors' plan will do much justice to the historic nature of the site. The fact that nothing significant has happened at Checkpoint Charlie over the past 30 years is quite telling. In a city that has engaging protests almost about everything, I have yet to find a recent Save Checkpoint Charlie movement. It's hard to imagine how the site will be turned into something that actual Berliners will come to enjoy. You know, how they will come to be at Checkpoint Charlie, go for a little bit of shopping of some sort. I, I just don't see that happen. It begs the question, who is Checkpoint Charlie actually for? If it's not for the Berliners, then who will come to enjoy it? And if it's just for the, for the tourists, uh, for the people that want to see where Checkpoint Charlie is, the famous Checkpoint Tar Charlie, uh, then at least we should maybe give them something that they will come to have a positive and memorable experience of. I mean, something that the Berliners are proud to present to the world. Maybe that's what Checkpoint Charlie should be. But I find it very interesting. Uh, this is, of course, a choice for the city government. And um, yeah, this also shows a bit about how this city and its citizens think about Checkpoint Charlie, about this particular site. This was the show, ladies and gentlemen. I want to do a big, big shout out to Carolina Marburger, who really helped me dissect this part of history. Uh, also, many thanks to the guides who lend me their voices for the cast. Uh, as a tour guide, I know it can be quite terrifying having yourself be recorded on one of your tours, but it allowed me to play around a bit with different perspectives today. Uh, I learned a lot throughout the making of this show about Checkpoint Charlie and the Cold War, and you'll find a lot of additional information material, mostly reading material and videos in the notes of the show, the show notes. Obviously, you can also go to the website, berlinology.org, where I'll put some of this material up as well. Uh, music as always by Mark Schilders, Denis Wouters and Svetnik. I really hope you enjoyed the new logo that has been designed by CC White. Go and check his stuff out. Uh, and of course, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed the show. We're just going to have a tiny little bit more of content right here for you. I'm going to say goodbye. Auf Wiederhören. Goodbye. Catch you on the flip side. Good morning. It's approximately 8 o'clock here at Checkpoint Charlie on Friedrichstrasse in West Berlin. I'm Lieutenant Bainbridge, assigned to the 3rd Battle Group, 6th United States Infantry, hometown Detroit, Michigan. The military police and myself are on Duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week here on Friedrichstrasse. Lieutenant, how has the wall affected our own soldiers? Since the construction of the wall, we have found that the morale of the troops in Bohem has gone up 100%. The American soldier now knows that he has a mission, He's a dedicated soldier when going about this mission. He works hard, he is dedicated. 
I would like to say to you in my hometown, in every hometown, that your American soldier is the best in the world.